0: joining you this week. The date today is March 9, 2017, and it is 8:30 p.m. We are recording this from D- the Deuterstadt Center in Ann Arbor, Michigan at the University of Michigan. Um, we have a lot of stories to be covering. We missed you guys last week because we were on spring break. We did, but we are we are very excited to be jumping back in. So our first story is actually we're going to talk about some Michigan news because we are called the Michigan Policy Cast. Um, the first story is about a judge sparing an Ann Arbor father of four from deportation. Um, he said that you get to stay. Um, this story covered in the Detroit Free Press said that in an immigration case that drew widespread support from the Ann Arbor community, a father of four with two convictions was spared deportation Tuesday after a judge concluded that the man's family would suffer extreme hardship if he left. Um, this story was worth covering because it really drew in our community inside of Ann Arbor, and it showed that the response we get from local grassroots groups could impact um, these, these deportation situations. Mm. Now, in other news, uh, there's been a lot of public pressure on a guy in the Michigan 9th District named Tim Wahlberg. So Tim Wahlberg was recently elected in an election against Gretchen Driscoll that um, actually a lot of our peers ended up working on. Um, it's a heavily r- gerrymandered district, to say the least, and it includes nearby um, cities nearby to Ann Arbor. Um, however, with a lot of public pressure on him, he actually decided to say that he's only going to support a bill that covers pre-existing conditions. So this could be evidence that public pressure is working. Um, are there? Are there, what, what kind of parallels does this bring to mind, Matt? Definitely, so this is sort of a local representation of what
1: we have really seen nationwide in terms of many particularly progressive and democratic uh, leaning activists going to town halls, visiting with local and federal representatives. Calling congressional offices to really have their voice be heard, similar to what the Tea Party movement was in two thousand nine, two thousand ten. That when people coalesce around a message and really are persistent with
0: reaching out to lawmakers, that change can really happen. Yeah, definitely. It's uh, it's these indivisible groups that mm-hmm. are coming out of the the indivisible guide that a few uh, former congressional staffers wrote, and it seems like it's carrying a lot of the same power that the Tea Party movement carried and is putting meaningful pressure. Um, and we are we are feeling those impacts inside of uh, purplish districts inside of Michigan, for sure. Absolutely. Uh, so in other,
1: maybe less uh, positive news out of, out of the state of Michigan, uh, GM reported to Uh, plan on cutting 1100 jobs in Michigan after creating 800 jobs in Tennessee. Uh, So a little more about what those jobs actually are. Uh, Most of the workers being laid off would be hourly workers and only about 14 of the 1100 were salaried, the rest being hourly, and the jobs were cut from a factory uh, in the Delta Township near Lansing. So some news that sort of gets at maybe a broader message of sort of jobs and job creation in the Trump administration era. Uh, And we thought it helpful to sort of zoom out of this very local discussion of jobs in Michigan and to look at what might be an unfair comparison but one that Trump has sort of forced our hand to consider of looking at average job growth under an Obama administration and job growth to date under the Trump administration at least the ones that he has championed Uh, so under Obama within his eight years there's an average of 109,000 jobs added per month Mm -hmm. uh, which really puts into perspective the sort of headline news stories such as uh, the carrier plant story in which Trump really trumpeted that 1100 jobs were created at the carrier plant uh, due to seven million dollars in sub-
0: subsidies that yeah. were given to to carrier. It, it definitely seems like Trump has a record of uh, vaulting these uh, shows of companies keeping jobs inside of the United States but the it, it He's not necessarily telling the whole story, is he? Not at all, no. I mean, in fact,
1: similar stories that Trump has pointed to, such as Ford creating 700 jobs, Fiat Chrysler creating 2,000 jobs, GM creating 1,500 jobs, uh, Sprint creating a whole 5,000 jobs, Lockheed Martin 1,800 jobs, and Intel 3,000 jobs, all of that adding up to a little under 19,000 jobs, right. of which you know Trump has really uh, championed and sort of pointed to as evidence of his reputation as really the job creator. Uh, but I think it's right. important to put these things into perspective and to keep in mind that that 19,000 jobs pales in comparison to an average right. of over 100,000 jobs added per month. And the fact that really, in aggregate administrations whether they be Obama's or Trump's have very little influence on job creation. <laughs> right and it,
0: and it makes me think back as well to the Dakota Access Pipeline and uh, the Keystone XL Pipeline when figures came out a couple of years ago, ago about Keystone XL really only adding I think it was something like 45 full-time jobs uh, mm-hmm. and these projects being held up as you know making a difference on the national level and the, the reality is that when we compare Donald Trump's numbers to the aggregate numbers, um, we, we get, we, we realize that they're, they're peanuts that that Donald Trump is bringing home. And I think it's also worth mentioning, uh, Matt, in the research that you did, it sounds like we found out that most of these uh, decisions were made before the Trump administration even took office. Oh, exactly. And that really points to this overall
1: message that it is very difficult to draw a causal link between things that uh, an administration does and jobs that are created.
0: Yeah, definitely. It seems we give the president too much credit for being able to actually move this needle nationally. Um, Now in other news, I watched the uh, press conference today with Sean Spicer and there is a story that is very much top of mind for me. Um, There was a question asked by a journalist about Glass-Steagall and about conversations with Bernie Sanders, whether or not he was open to um, having those conversations and potentially reinstating Glass-Steagall. That's something that Donald Trump has come out in favor for. Um, And then the question asked um, that whether or not uh, he is committed to restoring Glass-Steagall, him being Donald Trump, hopefully, and not Sean Spicer. What's it called? Sean Spicer had a one-word response saying yes, that um, he is committed to restoring Glass-Steagall. Now, a couple thoughts here. Um, First of all, I really, really, really hope that Sean Spicer and Donald Trump really understand what Glass-Steagall is. And I'm not 100% sure that they do because it's so inconsistent with Donald Trump uh, vaunting himself as this uh, deregulation machine. Mm -hmm. Um, So the Glass-Steagall Act... For those of us who don't know, it was a banking act in 1933, and it was passed by Congress um, to prohibit commercial banks from engaging in the same practices as investment banks. So it basically said that the commercial and investment arms of banks needed to operate separately. The the important point about Glass-Steagall is that it's just so inconsistent with what we understand about Donald Trump's rhetoric on the issue and and being a deregulation machine. Let's, let's keep watching the story, and let's make sure that he, he sticks to his word on this. Absolutely, yeah. Now, there's, there's another story that I wanted to talk about um, that's a couple weeks old, but it came out of the Bay Area where I lived before I moved to Ann Arbor. Um, and there's a train called Caltrain. It connects um, the San Francisco area to the Silicon Valley, basically um, the city to what is considered the South Bay of the Bay Area. Um, now, Elaine Chao, the current transportation secretary, said that Caltrain will no longer be going electric after she decided to pull the brakes on the funding. Um, now, this is a very meaningful uh, meaningful blowback to public transit inside of LA and actually jeopardizes the prospects of high-speed rail coming further down the road connecting uh, Northern California to Southern California. But it's something that I want to keep on our radar because Donald Trump has talked a lot about infrastructure, but the actual policies of um, his, uh, his administration coming from the transportation secretary, who by the way is also Mitch McConnell's wife, uh, Mitch McConnell being the Senate majority leader, um, they don't seem to be very pro-infrastructure so far.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: And maybe to
1: add on to further evidence that Trump is no friend of the state of California, uh, in an executive order passed by Trump entitled Enhancing Public Safety in the Interior of the United States. Uh, Within that executive order, there is a threat to restrict funding to sanctuary cities, which are governments that refuse to comply with federal detention requests from U.S. Immigration and Customs Enforcement. The idea behind this executive order is to really punish those states that defy orders to deport immigrants that are um, brought to the legal system for whatever number of reasons, whether they be small traffic crimes or something more serious. Uh, And so a report released by the Center for American Progress detailed how much could be on the line in the wake of President Trump's executive order that threatened to sort of yank these federal dollars for hundreds of sanctuary cities uh, and all told the state's hardest hit from this executive order would be California, New York, Illinois, Pennsylvania, and Maryland, with California standing to lose the most at $239.5 million wow. uh,
0: if cities don't comply. Right, it's it's one more move pushing Californians away. And it is worth mentioning that California's GDP is $2.45 trillion. So this mm-hmm. $239 million is, is a, a mere line item on the Some budget. That is um, rounding error. Yeah, yeah, definitely. But it certainly sends it sends a message. Sends a very important message. Mm-hmm. Okay, so here's another interesting story uh, about <laughs> a series of stories we're going to want to talk about with regards to Russia. Um, now Russia's obviously been getting a lot of attention in the news cycle for so many reasons. This story has not been getting that much attention. Um, Russia has a very combative ambassador to the United Nations, or at least they had a very combative ambassador um, to the United Nations. His name was Vitaly Chirkin, and he died suddenly of um, heart failure in New York. Um, Now, on February 21st, uh, the New York City Medical Examiner's Office released the preliminary results of an autopsy performed on Chirkin, and um, it stated that the cause of death needed further study Um, which often indicates the need for toxicology tests, meaning that he could have been poisoned. Uh, Poisoning is a favorite method of killing dissidents and disagreeers and um, people who challenge the administration of Vladimir Putin more broadly. Um, But it's very interesting because this story is not getting any attention. And there's very few people who are raising red flags or asking questions about it. Granted, this is at a time where there are a lot of very intriguing stories coming out related to Russia, but I think that this is one worth paying attention to. Why this ambassador was targeted um, is something that is still to be written in the history books. Okay, so I really want to talk about Paul Manafort now, because he faded from the news cycle. He was Donald Trump's uh, second campaign manager after Corey Lewandowski. his connections are fascinating. Um, he was actually formally um, the head of PR and did uh, had had multiple contracts with Viktor Yanukovych who was by all possible accounts a uh, dictator in Ukraine who had a private zoo was the star of the zoo was was famed for his ostriches um, huh. yeah in- interesting facts out of uh, out of Ukraine but uh, Paul Manafort actually created a party inside of Ukraine. He created a pro-Kremlin party um, that was basically used in order to undermine the Ukrainian resistance to the Russian invasion of Crimea. Um, So when Russia invaded Crimea, Ukrainians have a very mixed history with Russia. A lot of them support rejoining. A lot of them don't. But Viktor Yanukovych, um, or specifically Paul Manafort, was responsible for creating the party that fomented that insurrection um, and basically undermined the credible resistance. And this is the guy that ended up running Donald Trump's campaign. Yeah. Um, so it's it's worth at least trying to do justice to who some of these figures are and wh- what their connections are to the Trump administration.
1: Right, and this seems to only be the beginning of Maybe. what has become really this recurring talking point on all news media outlets of Russia scandals to date with the Trump administration. Uh, So to attempt to sort of break these out into four separate scandals of which cover maybe 1% of the total amount of news uh, about the connection between Trump and Russia. So first, Scandal 1 of which Uh, Sean provided a helpful example is just Trump campaign in general, their connections with Russia. Uh, So this began with the Russian hacks of the DNC as motivated by Putin's hatred for Clinton and sort of questions around whether the Trump administration was aware of these hacks and if they were complicit in the hacking. Scandal two, Michael Flynn, lied about his overtures to Russia. Scandal 3, Jeff Sessions seemingly lied under oath about his conversation with the Russian ambassador in telling the Senate that he didn't communicate with Russians during the campaign. And then scandal 4, a dossier with a tremendous amount of dirt on Trump and Trump's relationship with Russia, though many of those details are unverified, more seem to be corroborated by the day, um, sort of to round out this very grim yet comprehensive picture of some amount of question, questionable connections between Trump and Russia.
0: Yeah, I got two more scandals for us. <laughs> um, so the first one is about a guy named Dmitry Rybolovlov. Uh, he is the, known as the king of fertilizer He's a billionaire based in Russia, and uh, obviously had made his fortune through the fertilizer business. He's known for a couple things. Um, one is having the most expensive divorce in history. In order to hide assets from his wife, um, purchased a whole bunch of high-end real estate across the developing world. Um, there was one property in Florida, and it was actually initially owned by Donald Trump. Donald Trump acquired it for $40 million. Um, Dmitry Rubolovlov then acquired it for close to $100 million in what was also close to the most expensive real estate transaction in US history. Um, and when he acquired this property, um, he apparently didn't meet with Donald Trump a single time. Now, that being said, there are thoughts about whether or not he is connected to the Kremlin, um, being an oligarch and being a plutocrat. That made most of his money from uh, Vladimir Putin's dealings. And the interesting, the story gets really interesting when we hear about his private jet, because it was found to be in the same city as Donald Trump's private jet, or as Donald Trump's campaign airplane, in three separate instances during the campaign. Um, One of those instances was in a city called Concord, North Carolina. Now, the number of reasons. Uh, that a Russian billionaire oligarch would find himself in Concord North Carolina um, is small to say the least and it 's almost as small as the population of Concord North Carolina of <laughs> seventy nine thousand people yeah so what what <laughs> was doing in the seventy nine thousand person town is is hard to do justice to, but that 's that's just one of the stories that I wanted to mention um, and I think it's one that we should pay closer attention to because he claims he's never met with him before but he was in Concord, North Carolina on the same day in September 2016 hmm. during the election. Um, now the second story is about an Azerbaijani business partner of Donald Trump that uh, was going to help Donald Trump develop a tower. Um, this was going to be in the capital of Azerbaijan in Baku. Um, this. Now this transportation minister is believed to have ties to the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. And the way we know that is because a large infrastructure developer came to the Azerbaijani government with a proposition of um, developing their highways for five to six million dollars per square mile, um, which sounds like a lot of money. The Azerbaijani minister um, declined the offer, but then he ended up accepting an offer from a company that's associated with the Revolutionary Guard for $18 million um, per mile. Um, now, anytime there's a sketchy financial deal like that where the numbers just don't really add up and it doesn't seem like uh, state decision makers are acting in the public's best interest, I think it's uh, worth, merits, merits closer attention.
1: So in a slight diversion in a more random international story, uh, recently, it came to light that ISIS makes most of its money through taxation as opposed to other terrorist organizations that often rely on foreign international donors to support their activity. Um, And I think importantly from the U.S. perspective, that makes it much more challenging to fight ISIS on financial grounds. Yeah. Because what ISIS is doing is taking the large territory, of which uh, seems to be this about the size of the United Kingdom, and taxing those people that are within that territory and along the borders. And that is a very difficult financial stream for the
0: US to disrupt. Yeah, it's it's interesting looking at ISIS and seeing financial legitimacy and yeah. the semblances of sovereignty and that they collect their taxes. I mean, my my impression was that s- the majority of ISIS's money just comes from stolen oil. Um, but it it was it was fascinating to learn about this. Um, um, now, in other news, Jeff Sessions plans to re-expand use of private for-profit prisons in the United States. Um, he said this the same day that. He said that the federal government may boost enforcement of marijuana law as well. Um, It's also worth mentioning that um, private for-profit prisons have done very well since Donald Trump has taken office. Um, It's worth noting that the day Donald Trump was elected, um, the price of Corrections Corporations of America, their share price went from $14 to $20 in a single, unprecedented one-day movement. Wow. Wow.
1: Uh, And it seems to bring to mind uh, what is this really interesting company uh, that has created a Trump trigger Mm. in which not only from sort of policies resulting in price uh, changes for a given share of a corporation, but also we've seen time and time again... For example, as we talked about earlier in the episode with the carrier plan, that any time Trump tweets about something positive related to a corporation, the stock price shoots up. So what this company does is they're able to analyze that tweet in microseconds and are able to determine whether for which company the tweet is about and whether it's positive or negative, and then makes investment decisions based on that information.
0: And Uh, what do they do with the proceeds from the money? What's so (laughs) cool
1: is that, I don't know if they're still doing this, but when they originally launched this Trump trigger, any proceeds that they gained from these investments, they donated to the ASPCA, so they could make the argument that every Trump tweet is essentially uh, saving a puppy. Saving a puppy, Yeah. wow, (laughs) beautiful. Um, Uh, Yeah, so sort of, in completely different news, and if it seems as though we're jumping from story to story, it really is because the news cycle is so difficult to keep track of that to cover everything adequately sort of requires a little bit of whiplash. Uh, But to now jump into the healthcare space, uh, we wanted to just spend a few minutes talking about the Republican Replacement American Healthcare Act and how it has sort of, in some ways, changed what the ACA has done, and if it has really carried through on its promise to completely repeal and replace the ACA. So if we look at the ACA, it has six main provisions. The first, that those who are under 26 can stay on their parents' insurance plan, a very popular provision of the ACA. Second, that there's a pre-existing condition coverage for all those who are insured, also a very popular part provision. Third, a lifetime limits ban. Fourth, tax subsidies that are based on income. Fifth, the Medicaid expansion that covers now uh, about 10 million people and sixth and sort of you know most importantly and uh, of most political importance, the individual mandate. So now the Republican replacement, the American Health Care Act, really retains those first three elements, staying on the parents plan until 26, the pre-existing condition coverage, and lifetime limits ban. So sort of this rhetoric around that the ACA was a disaster and that we're gonna start from scratch, repeal it completely, and replace it with something new and better. Uh, it seems to be a little bit challenged by the fact that three of the core provisions of the ACA are being retained in this new plan.
0: Yeah, and, and just to speak a little bit more to the tax credits inside of the GOP plan, because uh, in the Affordable Care Act, they were definitely, there were there were situations where healthcare plans that would have costed 200 eighty dollars a month for low-income individuals ended up costing eight dollars a month after the subsidy Um, and so there was a lot of meaningful savings for particularly low-income populations but uh, the GOP tax credits would be tied to age um, in pretty broad ways. Old people get as much as $4,000 per year, young people get as much as $2,000 a year. However, the Republican plan would also let insurers charge um, those older adults, five times as much as younger adults. Um, so even a credit twice as big might not make up for that difference in premiums. Um, other interesting things about the GOP credits is that they don't vary by location, so they tend to disadvantage people in major metropolitan areas and advantage people um, in more rural, lower-income areas, where health insurance is less expensive. Um, and they do phase out gradually, starting with incomes above 75000 um, for individuals and 150000 for families.
1: Right, so sort of as Sean mentioned there, while these three core provisions have been retained, there is importantly some differences, some clear differences between the American Health Care Act and the ACA. So S- Sean mentioned the difference in tax subsidies. Uh, there also is this promise to stop Medicaid expan- expansion in the year 2020 which could prove to be very problematic for some lawmakers both senators and congressmen that represent districts that are heavily covered by this medicaid expansion Uh, additionally instead of a mandate uh, there would be a penalty of a 30 percent higher premium levied against an individual who chose not to maintain continuous coverage so this is something that. I think is worth just diving into a little further and to get a little more wonkish in our understanding of really what the implication of changing the mandate means. So essentially the mandate is there to ensure that there is a large enough pot of people being insured that premiums are kept at a relatively stable rate. Um, The logic behind that is that sick people cost insurers more money if only sick people are those that are getting insurance, premiums will go up by a lot. Uh, So the Republican plan attempts to incentivize more people and particularly young, healthy people to maintain continuous coverage to avoid this 30% higher premium levied against them if they were to get insurance after not having it for a while. Right. But in reality, you can imagine a situation if I'm a 27-year-old who is relatively healthy that has decided not to get coverage, what would disincentivize me further to get coverage is the promise that not only are my premiums going to be X amount, they're now going to be 30% higher than that X amount. Right. So really, you could imagine a situation in which this change would result in fewer healthy people Choosing to adopt and take coverage, right, which will drive insurance premiums up and just m- cause more of this burden. As Sean correctly mentioned, with tax subsidies, that the burden is going to fall on the on the most vulnerable populations, and uh, you know, vulnerable both in terms of medical conditions but also income too.
0: Yeah, definitely, the m- low income people definitely sound the most affected by, most negatively affected by the new GOP plan. Um, which is why affordable probably isn't in its name. Mm-hmm. Um, so the New York Times has done some really great reporting around some of the deregulation that has been uh, too, too esoteric to be a huge part of the news cycle. Um, Matt and I have four pieces of legislation that we selected from this list uh, that we wanted to read separate paragraphs about. So I'm going to kick things off. Um, because net neutrality is something that's very important to me and understanding the relationship with internet service providers and particularly the the power that Verizon and AT&T have in the United States I think is important to understand. Um, So these telecom giants, Verizon and AT&T, no longer have to take reasonable measures to ensure that customer's social security numbers, browsing history, and other personal information are not stolen or accidentally released. So it essentially, this, this order from uh, the president actually reduces the liability of telecom companies pretty dramatically. And it's worth noting that the, uh, the FCC commissioner um, under Donald Trump, uh, Ajit Pai, is uh, very very pro large telecom companies. He, he comes from a background in lobbying and, and in industry. And um, while this is disconcerting, it is also unsurprising.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely, and this next
0: policy out of what
1: seems to be the champion of Glass-Steagall, uh, that same administration has decided that Wall Street banks like Goldman Sachs and J.P. Morgan Chase will not be punished, at least for now, for not collecting extra money from customers to cover potential losses from certain kinds of high-risk trades that
0: helped unleash the two thousand eight financial crisis. Yeah, so this this allows them to collect extra money to basically like alleviate the risk from uh, their risky bets. Um, they yeah they're allowed to collect that money and um, disclosure isn't always super clear in those transactions, but um, gives gives a lot more power to big banks. Um, so this story I not even sure if we have mentioned it before, but it bears a million repeats, is that the Social Security Administration um, said that they will no longer try to block individuals with uh, disabling mental health issues from buying handguns, nor will hunters be banned from using lead-based bullets, which can actually poison wildlife on 150 million acres of federal land. Wow. And,
1: you know, those, these three... Policies are just a few of the more than 90 regulations that federal agencies and the Republican-controlled Congress have delayed, suspended, or reversed in the month and a half since President Trump took office. Um, and all of this data is according to a tally by the New York Times.
0: Great. Well, that's all we have time for this week. I'm Sean Danino, And I'm Matt Hillard. Thank you very much. Uh, if you have any questions, reach out to us at Michigan Policycast at gmail.com.